Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to have you with me here again. And we have a special guest on Two Ways News for this week's conversation. It's Tom Habib from Moore College. Well, Tom, how would I describe you? How would you describe yourself? How would you describe me? Uh, Well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Um, I'm a lecturer here at college. I've uh, just started, actually, in November as a lecturer in New Testament and Greek. Yeah, and... That's me. (laughs) That's you. We're going to be talking a little bit about the New Testament and especially about John's Gospel in Mm. just a few moments, which is kind of your thing, your area, uh, and the area of your doctoral dissertation. But first, many people won't know who you are, and I only know you a little bit. Mm. Um, Give us very quickly the Tom Habib story uh, in just a few words. Who are you? Where did you come from? How did you become a Christian? Sure. Well, I became a Christian uh, when I was a teenager. A friend invited me to youth group and I started to uh, learn more about Jesus, started to read the Bible and really came to love him and see how wonderful he is, how good he is. And it was really his call in Mark 8 uh, to give up your life and to save your soul (laughs) Uh, that, that really challenged me. I think I was living a life where I was trying to gain the whole world and... It really made me think, what um, what's my life going to be about? Uh, so that started a, a, a journey for me over the next few years of discovering who Jesus is. And um, yeah, by his grace, I uh, put my trust in him and uh, been a Christian ever since. And I uh, grew up in the southwest Sydney. Um, that's where I first went to church at St. Thomas Moorbank. And uh, since then, uh, went to uni to be a teacher and then to study teaching. After that, uh, decided to do MTS and then went to college and then went into ministry. I think the last time I came across you, you were ministering somewhere in the southern part of Sydney. I can't remember exactly where. Yeah, it was in Bankstown. So at Yaguna and Condal Park Anglican, I was the assistant minister there. And you had your own podcast going at that stage, (laughs) which I used to listen to called The Word Grows, which was very good. Yeah, it was a, a bit of an experiment. I think it was uh, I don't know if it was the early days, but certainly earlier days of podcasting. Um, and I bought myself a microphone and just thought, well, let's give this a go. Lots of people were getting into podcasts, and I thought it'd be great uh, for people to be getting into God's Word while doing that. So uh, really, I was really interested in John's Gospel, really wanted to explore uh, this Gospel more for myself and encourage people because I found it such a challenge and encouragement for myself. And so started that podcast and yeah it was it was really great John's gospel is not only a wonderful and challenging book and it was not just the main subject of that podcast you were running it became the topic of deeper study for you you went mm. and did a phd in John's gospel before coming back here to more college and we're going to talk about John quite a bit in today's episode about what a gloriously deep and challenging and wonderful gospel it is mm. and it's interesting isn't it how fashions and fads come and go with Gospels. I remember when I went forward at the 1979 Billy Graham crusade, I was given a John's Gospel. That was the Gospel you were given as a new Christian that would give you the essence of Christianity. But times have changed. We kind of went through the Mark's Gospel period where that was the Gospel we gave out to everybody. These days, it's kind of either Mark or Luke often that we study. And John seems to have slightly fallen out of favour. But it's incredibly profound and deep Gospel. Perhaps that's why it's fallen out of favour. People see it as very deep, perhaps too complicated. Is that right? I think so. I remember chatting to a friend uh, in ministry and asked whether he uses John 
uh, for evangelism? And he said, no, because the moment you open it up, you're in a discussion about the Trinity. <laughs> and I, I, I do understand that. There is a lot of depth uh, in John. I mean, there's a lot of depth in all the Gospels, really. But I find John to be an incredibly useful gospel for evangelism because it really gets to the heart of a lot of questions that we're asking today, questions about what is truth, questions about how we can know God, if there is a God, how can we know him, Um, and also just really challenges us to think about our response to Jesus and why we are accepting or rejecting him. So uh, I think it's a great gospel to use for evangelism, um, but all the gospels are, so yeah. (laughs) Indeed they are, and I I hope after our episode today it might drive some of our listeners to go and have another read of John's gospel Mm -hmm. or get into John's gospel again. What was your particular focus? What sort of things did you want to dig into in John's Gospel in your in your further study, in your PhD studies? Mm. Uh, early on, my interest uh, was really around the themes of belief and unbelief. I wanted to explore what, did it, what does it mean to believe uh, and what does John teach us about this um, and what does it mean not to believe? Why don't we believe? What are the underlying causes of that. And reading through John, I think I, I found a real richness to, uh, in, in terms of answers to these questions, and I wanted to explore them more. Um, but like any PhD, that's far too broad. <laughs> so um, I, I ended up being particularly interested in characters. How do the characters in John, and when I say characters, I don't mean that they're not real people, uh, but just looking at it from a sort of literary perspective. How do the way that these people, how are the way that they're portrayed what does that teach us about belief and unbelief uh, in their responses to Jesus? Uh, how are we meant to understand them and what are we meant to take away from the way they're portrayed? And that's really what I was exploring in my in, in my PhD. And again, because you have to narrow down, always narrow, narrow, um, I came to look at one particular group, uh, which is uh, in Greek, the Eudaioi. Uh, and this group is translated in different ways in, in, in different Bibles. Uh, so traditionally translated the Jews, um, now more often translated Jewish leaders, um, and some would suggest actually Judeans is a better translation. And that's a tricky topic because of uh, real concerns about anti-Semitism and things like that, uh, which is why these questions of translation come up. But that was my area, looking at how this group are portrayed in John's Gospel and what we can learn about faith and unbelief from that. Let's start by talking about belief and unbelief more Mm. generally and then zoom in on the Jewish leaders. Mm. Because in John's Gospel, you're right, it is kind of a slightly tricky area. You've got people believing, and then I think of the Jews, the Jewish leaders in Mm. chapter 8 who believe in in Jesus, but then the very next moment, Jesus seems to be tearing strips off them and really getting stuck into them almost as if they're unbelievers. Mm. And generally, you have complex characters like Nicodemus, mm-hmm. who is, where does he sneeze? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Um, but let's talk about belief and unbelief more generally before we zero in on the Jewish leaders. Mm. What is unbelief in John's gospel? Mm. How would you spot or notice unbelief? It is, it is very complex, as you say, because um, John likes to use a word and then explore a whole range of different facets of how we understand that word, and belief is one of those words. So he doesn't change the word depending on who he's talking about. He'll talk about all different groups and say they believed in Jesus. And yet, when you look at where they end up or the nature of their belief, you say, well, there's belief and there's belief. Um, So in John chapter 2, you have, at the end of chapter 2, you have those who believed in Jesus, believed in his name, I think it says, but then Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. 
you you have, as you say, the the um, this group of uh, Judeans or Ju- Jewish people who um, John says they believed in Jesus, and yet very soon afterwards Jesus is saying, you know, your father is the devil, and then they try to kill him. And so you do have this tension of well, what what does it really mean to believe? And the same question comes up with unbelief as well. Um, not just what does it mean not to believe, but what are the reasons for unbelief? And I was particularly interested in that because when you look at, um, say, a chapter like John 7, where you have a lot of people rejecting Jesus, and yet Jesus will, will say things like, do not judge by mere appearances, but judge rightly. And you, as, you, as you look at their objections to Jesus, you, you come to see that they're not really founded on any, <laughs> any good reasons. Um, they're, they're not judging fairly about Jesus. And, and that opens the question, well, well, why are they rejecting him? If it's not for the good reasons, what's actually behind it? And Jesus actually tells us at the start of John 7, it's, it's because the world hates him, because he says that the world is evil. So there's, there are these underlying, deeper spiritual reasons that, that are causing unbelief, causing people to reject Jesus. And um, that's really teased out throughout the whole gospel, that people will not come into the light because they love the darkness. That's chapter 3, right? That's chapter 3. That's, that's what Jesus says after his um, discussion with Nicodemus. Or you look at um, John chapter 9 with the man born blind, clear evidence that Jesus has performed a miracle. The Pharisees interview everyone. It's, it's overwhelming evidence. They can't deny it. And yet they still refuse to believe and they persecute those who do believe. What does that tell you about them? Well, they're blind, but their blindness isn't because of a lack of light. Uh, it's a willful blindness. They don't want to believe. And one of the really interesting reflections I've had on John 9 is that at the start of John 9, you have the disciples thinking that the man born blind, his blindness reflects some sort of sin, which Jesus immediately rejects. But actually, the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees does reveal their sin. There is a blindness that reveals sin, but it's not physical blindness, it's, it's spiritual blindness. And when we reject Jesus, it's not just for a lack of information. It's not just because we haven't been given the best argument. It's because in our heart, we want to live our own way. Um, And I think that's what John is trying to show as he unpacks belief and unbelief, or one of the things anyway. So what brings belief then in John's Gospel? So if if unbelief Mm. is our kind of quite deliberate turning away from the light because we really prefer the darkness for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. It could be, as you say, because everyone else in the world prefers the darkness and we don't want to be out of step. It could be we just want to live life our own way. But whatever the reason, there's a willful kind of, there are none so blind as those who will not see kind of aspect to it. What then brings belief? What's mm-hmm. the character of belief? How does that actually change? I think this is one of the most interesting things in John because it's not symmetrical. It's not as though those who don't believe don't believe because of their sin and those who do believe believe because they're really great people. And you see this sort of asymmetry in John chapter 3 again because Jesus says that those who will not come into the light do so because they love the darkness and they fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who do come into the light, they don't reveal their own virtue or goodness, but they reveal what has been done by God. They reveal the work of God in their life. 
So John 3.21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And you see this actually playing out in John 9. So if the blindness of the Pharisees reveals their sin, what does Jesus say about the man born blind at the start of chapter 9? He says that this man was not born blind because of any sin, but so that the work of God might be revealed in his life. So belief is not uh, is not because of our own goodness, but it is the work of God. It is the work of the Spirit. This is why you have to be born again of the Spirit to see the kingdom of God. And so belief, on one level, it is about being open. It is about being willing to hear the truth. It is about putting aside your prejudices and your sinful desires to want to actually be open to what God has to say. But in our sinfulness, that can only happen by a work of the Spirit. That can only happen if our hearts are softened and and our eyes are opened. And so it is entirely a work of God if we believe. Now, what does it mean to believe? Well, to believe in John means to come into a relationship with Jesus and to accept him as your Lord, as your Savior. It's it's what belief means in the rest of New Testament as well, uh, to put your trust in Jesus. But the process of belief or how we come to believe uh, that's entirely a work of God. And I think uh, we see that again and again in John's Gospel. It's there right from the beginning, really, isn't it, in the overture, when how does someone come to be a child of God? Mm. It's, it's by the work of God, not by descent or by the will of man and so on and so forth, which sets up this idea it's not necessarily those who descend mm. in the line of the Jews who are going to be the ones to inherit the kingdom or to believe, but those whom God regenerates by his Spirit, those whom he brings glory to himself by revealing to them himself. Absolutely. And this is, I think, why the characterization of, of uh, the, the Judeans or the, the Jews in, in John is such an important part of John's gospel, because here is a group, or at least some within that group, who believe that they have a right and that they are in a relationship with God because of their ancestry, because of their physical descent, because they are Abraham's children. That's what they say to Jesus. And Jesus is clear that, actually, no, there is a work of the Spirit that has to happen for all people, for the entire cosmos, and that actually John universalizes the problem so that we're all in the same boat, we're all in sin, we're all slaves to sin, to use his language from John 8, and we all need liberation by the Son so that we can be part of the Son's household. You're not part of the son's household by virtue of your ethnicity, but rather by belief in the son. And so that's really what's going on in John 8 when Jesus uses this incredibly harsh uh, description of this group of people that, that, you know, they, that their father is the devil. Uh, he's not saying anything in particular about them as a group, as if they in particular are, are evil, unlike the rest of the world. But rather, he, the, he's, the shocking thing that he's saying is that this group that sees themselves as Abraham's children actually are of children of the devil. And the way that we see that is by their actions. What are they doing in their rejection of Jesus? They're not accepting the truth, and they're plotting to murder Jesus. This is Jesus' foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen. And who is the devil? Well, he is the father of lies, and he was a murderer from the beginning. And so by their actions, they're revealing their true ancestry, 
Now, it's really important we understand here, this is not a particular attack on the Jews or a particular attack on, on Jewish people in, in particular, but rather it is a condemnation of all of us. It's a condemnation of the cosmos, of the world, and that this is who we are regardless of our ethnic background, regardless of whatever claims we can make um, to, to having some sort of special relationship with God by virtue of something of the flesh. Uh, to say that actually, no, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners, and we're all in need of a saviour. And uh, I think that's a a challenging thing for all of us to hear, um, but a really helpful way that John shows our need for Jesus. In one sense, the the Jews in John standing for the rebellion and sin and stubbornness and and hard headed hard heartedness of humanity is is really just a reflection of the Old Testament as well, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing in John 8 or the other tough things Jesus says about the Jew- Jewish leaders there that the prophets don't also say about mm. Israel mm. Uh, and their apostasy and their appalling rebellion against God. Uh, and it strikes me that Israel is a kind of microcosm of, of humanity in the Old Testament. They're, they're sort of chosen out from among the nations to be God's special chosen treasured people, his kingdom of priests, and yet, even though that's going to be the line through which salvation and, and Christ comes it's a nation that remains rebellious and sinful and and for whom salvation is is always elusive. They, they're always turning their backs on it. They're always reverting to type. And you sort of see it in the New Testament as well, as he comes to his own and yet his own receive him not. Mm. And I think just like Israel, there are always believers. And so um, when you look at, again, the portrayal of uh, the 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 Jews or the Judeans in, in John's gospel, I think it's easy for us to think it's an entirely negative portrayal. But when you look carefully, there are actually a lot of positive things that we see as well. So in John 11, when Lazarus is raised, we see the compassion uh, that these people have for Mary and for Martha. And then we see that we're told that many of them believed which is really striking. Actually, a lot of them believed. And what we, as we get to sort of John 11, we see that a schism has, has um, been created within this group. There are some who believe and there are some who don't believe. And that's really interesting because I think that division in itself is showing that ethnic identity is not the primary concern here. It's not about whether I am Jewish or not. It's not about whether I have Jewish heritage or not. It's not about what my background is about. It's about my response to Jesus. And so this term that would have been used as the marker for whether I'm part of the people of God itself is kind of broken down. It's no longer the identifier. And I think you see that more than anything else in the character of Nicodemus, this complex character who is a Udaya, who is a Judean, who in fact is a leader of this group of people, and yet who slowly throughout the gospel moves toward Jesus. So we've talked about the nature of unbelief and how in many ways the unbelief of the Judeans is is like a, a stark picture of, of unbelief in the gospels. Are you suggesting that the belief of different ones of them, like Nicodemus and others and their growing belief, shows us what belief is like? I think what their belief shows is that belief is open and available to anybody. And it shows that the criteria that we sometimes create for whether somebody is a believer or not, in particular in John's Gospel, whether you're of Jewish heritage or not, 
uh, is not relevant. What matters is your response to Jesus. That's really what uh, the function of this character seems to be. And in Nicodemus, what you also see is that believing in Jesus is not a denial of your um, Jewish heritage. Because this was one of the things I think I found most interesting in my uh, doctoral studies. Every time Nicodemus is mentioned, his Judean identity is highlighted. So in John chapter 3, we're told he's a leader of the Judeans. In John chapter 7, he rejects the Pharisees' um, view of Jesus. But the way he does it is by bringing the law up. He says, doesn't our law say that we should hear someone out before we reject them? So he's actually drawing on the law of the Old Testament in defense of Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees were using the law to condemn Jesus because they were saying he was a Sabbath breaker. And so Nicodemus is actually drawing on uh, what we have in the scriptures in defense of Jesus. And then when you get to John 19... Um, where Nicodemus comes to bury Jesus. And I think this really is a moment of him coming into the light. He's, he is somebody who is identifying himself with Jesus by burying him. An exorbitant amount of spices is used to bury him. So clearly there is a, a demonstration that he believes that Jesus is of great worth and value, very similar to the uh, anointing of Jesus before his death as well. And yet, what are we told? We're told that he was buried according to the customs of the Judeans. So Nicodemus, he hasn't rejected the Old Testament in coming to Jesus. Rather, a true understanding of God's law, a true understanding of what God has taught in the Old Testament, leads to faith in Jesus. And I think that's what we see in Nicodemus, that this is not a rejection of the past, but actually a fulfillment and a right response by somebody who is from the people of Israel, is to accept Jesus, not to reject him. You're giving an example there, I think, of the kind of thing you spoke of before, of how you read a character through a gospel. And this was a big focus of of your study and thinking, because Nicodemus is complicated. We, We tend to come to the gospels and think, when we see an incident or read of someone, that it's a kind of a simple sort of black hat, white hat kind of scenario. They're a good guy or they're a bad guy. But that's not the way life is, and it's not the way the gospel is either. The gospels are, and Nicodemus is an example of this, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that I was interacting with in my studies was the way that a, a lot of modern interpreters understand this complexity. So in a lot of modern scholarship, the way that people understand character complexity, such as Nicodemus or more, more broadly the, the Eudaioi, the, the Judeans in, God's, in John's gospel, is to say that actually... What John is doing is creating ambiguity when it comes to faith. It's not so clear-cut. That's right. Life is a journey. We're all on a journey. We're all going to get there one day or maybe not, but we can't actually box anyone. We can't actually ever say whether somebody is actually a believer or not a believer. We're all on some sort of a spectrum, and that's what John is doing. And that's that's quite surprising when you read John, because John is very clear-cut, isn't he? Um, he, he there is light, there is darkness, there is life, there is death. And what some of these um, scholars will say is that these complex characters undermine John's own dualism, that that John is subverting his own categories to show that life is actually a lot more blurry. Now, that's incredibly appealing, especially in our day. I think that speaks exactly to uh, sort of the spirit of the age. My question was, well, 
that, that seems odd that John would subvert his own his own theology there. But secondly, is that actually how um, ancient writers thought about and used character? Because it is a very modern attitude to character, I think, that sort of ambiguity. Everybody's an individual. And so a lot of my uh, research was about trying to understand how, do character, how does character function in ancient literature, particularly ancient Greek literature was my focus, but I think more broadly um, all ancient literature is probably true of this. And how do we understand complex character? Because there are complex characters in ancient literature. It's not all black and white. Um, and Greek tragedy would be a good example of this, where you have uh, real complexity going on. Um, so how do we understand this? And um, my argument in the end was that the function of complexity is not to try and create ambiguity, and that that's actually a very modern concern. But rather, complexity is trying to wrestle with different ideas that, that seem in tension with each other. And that's a very ancient thing to do. Uh, if you th sort of think of Socrates' dialectics, you know, you're, you're trying to wrestle with these different ideas that, that, that seem, seem to be in tension but also seem to be true at the same time. And I think that's exactly what we have going on with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus, on the one hand, is portrayed as one of the Eudaia. He is a Judean. And then on the other hand, you have him slowly moving towards Jesus. And there is a tension there. But that tension is resolved by showing that actually a right response of a Judean, a right response of one of the people of God, is to come to Jesus. And that's actually the function of, of complex character. It's not to create ambiguity, but to wrestle with real tensions uh, that, that, that the writer, that, that John himself is trying to, to um, deal with and, and explain in his gospel. So there's complexity, but not ambiguity. Uh, and that complexity does have a, a resolution. Um, anyway, that's that's sort of where I landed on my research. Makes sense to me, Tom, because there's complexity in ha in all of us, in where we come from, in our mm -hmm. cultures, in who we are, in what we inherited, just as there is with the Judeans. And when we come to Christ, in one sense, it's the starkest, biggest change possible. It's a change from darkness to light. Mm -hmm. And yet we come as all different sorts of people with our own backgrounds, our own here. Do I need to stop being uh, a white Australian born on the north coast of New South Wales who likes cricket and golf and, and reads P.G. Woodhouse novels <laughs> in order to come to a Well, it doesn't disqualify me, but mm -hmm. it doesn't qualify me either. Mm -hmm. It's part of what I bring with me and how I come to Christ and the particular things I will have to repent of and, and how my life will change will be complex depending on who I am. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the human story of, of belief and conversion, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you do see that, that human story again and again in the characters uh, in John. You have people coming to Jesus from a range of different backgrounds, and yet Jesus does create a crisis point in their life, a decision that has to be made. And it is a decision that leads them on a different path. And underneath that decision, you have the sinfulness that's going on in our own life that is stopping us from coming to Jesus. And at the same time, you have the work of God that is opening eyes. Tom, as we think about what this means for us today, how we read John and how we carry some of the things into our lives that we've been talking about, uh, two things occur to me. The first is the nature of belief. You said earlier there are believers and there are believers. And when you said that, I thought, well, yes, that's the case in the other Gospels as well. You have the four soils. You have people who come to accept the word, but then who don't last. So how does all this, first of all, help us think about belief itself, about our own belief and about the belief of others in our churches, for example? Absolutely. I think 
the parable of the four soils is a really uh, helpful comparison with John's Gospel because I think the same point is being made in John's Gospel, that there are people who can display belief, and at least from our perspective, genuine belief. This is, this is people who are believing in Jesus, and yet they don't remain in Jesus. And that language of remain is uh, very common in John uh, and is used quite a bit. There are people who come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're only interested in the signs. They're only interested in a free meal. Uh, They think that he's a political messiah and they want to make him king. They're coming to Jesus, but they're not coming to him as the one who will die for them and who will take away their sins. Uh, They're not interested in eating his flesh and drinking his blood, to use that language from John 6. And so that belief, that coming to Jesus, it is a coming to Jesus, but it's not coming to him for the right reasons. And John's trying to show uh, the, the problem with that. At the same time, there are people who do seem to come to Jesus for the right reasons, and yet they don't stick with Jesus. And you really get that, I think, in John chapter 8. Jesus says at the very beginning of that chapter, he says, or rather that section, he says that whoever remains in my word is my true disciple. And yet the very next thing that he teaches them, they reject that they're slaves to sin. And surprise, surprise, that tends to be the the thing that most people don't want to hear today as well. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to hear, that we're sinners and that we actually need to repent. We actually need to come to Jesus uh, to be saved of our sin. And so it's not enough to just begin in belief. You have to go on in belief. And then you get to John 15 and you see that that belief is going to bear fruit as well. And so again and again, John does not deny the word belief but he gets us to think deeply about what this looks like. And it is a real challenge for us to believe in Jesus means to come to him for salvation, to come to him for rescue from our sins. It means to believe in who he is as the son of God, as God himself. And it means to keep on believing, to not give up and to not pick and choose, to not say, I'll believe this about him, but I won't believe that about him. We need to receive his word and remain in his word. And if we do that, we'll produce fruit. And that's a real challenge for us. But I think it's one that we especially need to hear when sometimes uh, in in our good intentions to evangelize and to bring people to faith, uh, we perhaps make it out to be simply like signing on the dotted line or, or, or walking through a door and then that's it. And then you can kind of leave Jesus behind and get on with your life. Um, and John challenges that idea and gives us a much a richer, a fuller picture of what it means to believe in Jesus. The other side of that is, is the second thing that I was thinking about. What is John's picture of unbelief, the nature of, of what unbelief is and how it changes through the work of God and what it is really that prevents people from coming to Christ? How should that shape the way we minister, especially the way we evangelize, the way we interact with non-Christians and seek to bring the gospel of Jesus to them? This is not only in John, I think we see this all throughout the New Testament and actually all throughout the Bible, but the big reminder for me is that at the heart of the problem uh, of unbelief is a spiritual problem. It's not primarily intellectual, it's not uh, emotional, it's spiritual. It is that we all have, and we're included in this, it's only by the grace of God that we've had our eyes opened, but that we all have a deep commitment to sin, uh, to a rejection of God that's in our hearts. And because of that, we don't want to believe. I find one of the most striking parts of John when 
in John 8, uh, those who are described as having uh, the devil as their father, talks about lies and says that uh, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. And so truth, it's a foreign language <laughs> for, for sinners like us. Truth is a foreign language that, that we just do not understand. We cannot hear uh, without the work of God. And so that, in some ways, can sound discouraging, but it's actually encouraging in, in, in certain ways. First of all, it reminds me that it's not all on me. Um, I, can, I can do everything right, and yet without the grace of God, people will not believe. I think that's that, that that's the first thing that I'm reminded of. I need to pray. I need to ask God I need um, for his spirit to be at work in these people's lives because there is a deeper problem that than something that I can deal with. I think, though, it also changes the nature of how I approach evangelism because the way that uh, people come to life in John is through the word. It's through hearing the word. This is something that Jesus says again and again. It was actually the reason for the title of my podcast long ago, The Word Grows, uh, because it is through the word uh, that, that, that life comes, through Jesus' word. And I think we often can think that if we just get the right strategy for our church or if we just have the right uh, approach in evangelism, if we just get the, the, um, uh, the, the right argument for people, then they will believe and that would be true if the problem wasn't so deeply spiritual, if the problem wasn't sin. But knowing that it is, it stops me relying on those sort of external factors. And it leads me to trust that if, if God alone is the one who can actually bring someone from darkness into light, it has to be by his spirit. It has to be through his word. And so my evangelism is going to be focused on the word of God. Really, it's about trying to get people to be confronted by the word and letting God's spirit do the work. And that doesn't mean that I don't need to think about how I explain things, or that doesn't mean that I don't need to think about what the best way to approach people is. I'm not saying there's nothing else to talk about, but at the very heart, I think we need to never lose sight of the fact that evangelism is about people meeting God in his word and being convicted by his spirit of their sinfulness and having their eyes opened to the truth. And that's, I think, a real encouragement that we get, again, not just in John, but in the whole Bible. That's really helpful, Tom. It kind of gives our evangelism a sort of center of gravity, doesn't it? It, it? There are other things to think about and talk about, and there are issues to sort of work through, the best way to, to organize ourselves as we seek to share the gospel. But in the end, and centrally, and most importantly, it's sharing simply, clearly, compellingly, the best we can, the word of Jesus, and praying that God's Spirit would work through that word. Absolutely. And being open to sometimes that that won't happen. Sometimes God may choose not to open blind eyes. And we see that all throughout John's gospel as well. I like to think of John 6 as the worst evangelistic event ever. You have thousands of people coming to Jesus. And by the end, even the disciples, even the support team, the, uh, the counselors at the back have left Jesus. And sadly, that's the reality. But then we also see sometimes the blind man whose eyes are opened, and that's a real joy. It is a joy, Tom, and it's been a joy to talk to you today and to be stimulated again to think about John's gospel and to be motivated, as, as I have been, to get into it and to read it again. It's a wonderful and rich uh, part of God's word. Uh, what's the famous metaphor or saying? It's the pool in which a 
child can swim and an elephant can wade. Is that true? Was that actually ever said about John's Gospel, or is that just a kind of Christian meme? I think it was said. I, I'm not exactly sure who first said it. It may have been Augustine. I'm not sure. Uh, but I've definitely heard it before. I think it's true as well. I think it's absolutely, you will never plumb the depths of this wonderful gospel, but don't be afraid to bring it to someone who's never heard about Jesus before and to encourage them to find out about him through John's gospel. Yes, indeed. Let's see if we can bring about a revival of using John's gospel in evangelism, (laughs) the new evangelistic course based in John's gospel. That's what we need. (laughs) Well, thanks, dear listener, for being with us again here at Two Ways News. It's been great to have you with us and part of this conversation. I'd like to say send in all your questions about John's gospel, and Philip and I will try and answer them. We'll do our best, but we might get Tom back in if if there's any that we can't answer. Uh, And as always, if you want to get in touch, just send me an email at tonyjpayne at me.com. Tom, we usually close in prayer on our episodes. How about you do that for us? Love to. Let's pray. Loving Father, we know that you love us and that in your Son you have made a way for us to become children of God. Father, we pray that as we continue to trust in Jesus, you would help us to have a faith that remains, that remains in your word and that produces fruit. And we pray for all of those that we know who don't know Jesus, all of those who are at the moment rejecting him, we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would open their eyes so that they might see and believe and be saved. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.